Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number one, the introduction to the book of Numbers. Well, I guess out of the frying pan and into the fire we go, as, just as the Israelites were about to do. We're now laying down the book of, Levi of Leviticus, the book of the priests. And so we're going to begin an exploration of the book of Numbers that's going to last for several months. All right, so let's back up for a moment. And let's set the stage by seeing the current state of Israel at this, in this era. And as we end Leviticus, we've seen that they've been gone from Egypt for about a year. So much has happened to these people so fast. Israel is gone from little more than a clan of 75 to a large nation of around 3 million souls during the four centuries they had spent in Egypt. Now, I don't think we can wrap our minds around just how long a period of time 400 years is. You know, it, not much over 200 years ago, just barely over half the amount of time that Israel was in Egypt, did Wa George Washington become the first president of these newly formed United States of America. But for us today, it's nearly impossible to relate to those days. And yet, even with all the papers and the books and the essays and the documents written about those incredible events that led to the founding of this great nation, what actually happened isn't fully known. History is constantly being questioned and revised. We have legends that abound from the Revolutionary War era. Washington chopping down the cherry tree. Paul Revere's ride, the Boston Tea Party, the first shot fired at Concord, and so many more. Almost all of these stories, as we have them today, are based on actual events, but most likely they've been scrubbed pretty clean, molded, exaggerated, maybe, to make the characters bigger than life, and to express a viewpoint that conforms to a certain political agenda. Now, for most of us postmoderns, the events of the American Revolutionary War are fuzzy at best, and they're all bound up in dusty history books. There's no one alive, no eyewitnesses, no survivors to defend or deny the most accepted accounts that we have from those days. And those happenings of a mere 250 years ago are barely even considered relevant to us. So, few even want to know about it. And in an era when printing presses abounded throughout the colonies, and newspapers were in full swing, and journalism was a well-established profession, and libraries were stocked and growing, and the speed of communication was, was quite rapid, still, with all that available to us, our current knowledge of that era is pretty limited. And our interest in the lives of those folks approaches zero. Okay. And despite the substantial volume of actual Revolutionary War records, there's really 
quite little consensus among scholars of exactly what occurred during those formative years of America. Now that shouldn't be all that hard for us to understand since we have a Supreme Court that can't even agree on the intent of the men who penned our Constitution barely over 200 years ago. Now with the analogy of contemporary America's view of the revolutionary, revolutionary war period in your minds, now put yourself in the sandals of those Israelites in Egypt in the years leading up to the arrival of Moses. How they had arrived in Egypt those several centuries earlier was probably not terribly important to the bulk of the Hebrews. A score of generations had passed since Jacob had brought his sons and their families from the land of Canaan down into Egypt to be cared for, for through a horrible famine that gripped that region. And their sponsor and caretaker, of course, was none other than the Grand Vizier of Egypt, Jacob's very own son, Joseph. Now Joseph, obviously Jacob's favorite son, whom he thought had been killed by wild animals so many years earlier, was the savior, not just of Israel, but of Egypt as well. Because just as God had a purpose for Israel, he had a purpose for Egypt. Egypt was to be the womb in which Israel would gestate until it was God's appointed time to birth them as a full-blown nation set apart for service to him. Well, by the time Yehovah was readying Israel for Moses' arrival, Jacob and Joseph were just distant memories. I mean, how much that current batch of Israelites knew of them was, that was actually true versus how much was hyperbole and legend would be pretty difficult to assess in our day. Except that like us, all those Israelites were just trying to live life. And, and, and the day-to-day -day challenges they faced were enough to worry about without thinking of themselves like they were some important piece of a unfolding cosmic prophetic puzzle. In reality, the Israelites were now more Egyptian in their thinking and in their beliefs than they were Hebrew. I doubt Abraham would even have recognized them. And yet they did not entirely forget who they were and where they originated. They had leaders and elders who God had raised up for a purpose. These leaders who wouldn't let them forget even though a goodly portion of the Hebrew population thought these leaders senile, just hangers on to a lost hope, maybe even an ancient myth. And like us, they wondered what events from centuries earlier had anything to do with them. So after four centuries, how much did the average Hebrew really think about that promise that had made, been made to Abraham Isaac, and then Jacob, that their God would give them a land of their own, a land flowing with milk and honey. Even that it would be a very specific land that they were to receive. The land that those same three patriarchs roamed through, throughout the bulk of their lives, 
the land of Canaan. Was Israel still waiting expectantly? Or were they largely given up? They just adjusted to their new circumstances. Had they put that four centuries old hope of a homeland so far back into their minds that it was just a faded memory? I mean, how much do we today think about the birth of our nation, the Revolutionary War, the minute minute conquered Benjamin Franklin, or of our relatives giving their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy? So, there were the Israelites, just living life, albeit a pretty miserable one, because they had become the slave labor force of a nationalist Egyptian government that had empire building in mind, when all of a sudden, a man named Moses shows up. And he says, God sent him. And the Hebrews sighed a collective, yeah, right. And they went on about their business. Well, after all those years of mere existence... Hundreds of years of sitting on the sidelines, suddenly the prophetic dominoes began to fall at a breathtaking pace. Moses informs the elders of Israel of his mission. Then he immediately goes to Pharaoh with his message from God to let his people go. And the Pharaoh refuses, and so God sets about to change the prince of Egypt's mind through devastating plagues. And finally, after Pharaoh remains hardened to the Lord's warnings and disciplines, El Shaddai's judgment is poured out on the land of Egypt, and all firstborns of Egyptians and their animals die. The Hebrews had been instructed in advance to paint the doorposts of their mud-brick huts with the blood of a yearling ram and a sign to God that they were in submission to him. Now, many Egyptians and sojourners from far-flung nations had seen the power of God in action, that, that God of the Hebrews. And they'd seen it in that series of those nine other worldly plagues and infestations. And so, they, uh, they followed suit. Those who obeyed, Hebrew, Egyptian, Canaanite, Hittite, Bedouin, African, they were all spared death at the hand of the Creator. Within 24 hours after that horrific judgment, the Israelites were packed and on their way out of Egypt. And within a few weeks of that, they arrive at Mount Sinai, and their leader Moses begins to receive a long series of commands and ordinances directly from the mouth of God. And Moses, well, Moses is receiving the constitution of Israel. And it's unlike anything man has ever seen, because it's not of man. Although they are called a nation of priests, a separate priesthood is established, by means of Moses' brother, Aaron. God's principles were made visual and physical and understandable by humans. By means of rituals and celebrations and holy days 
by means of the construction of the all-important earthly dwelling place of God Almighty, that wilderness tabernacle. And this grand portable tent was a physical earthly model of God's heavenly throne room. Moses met with God here on a regular basis, face to face, inside the holiest place towards the back of that tent. And he received counsel and instruction. But now, by the end of the book of Leviticus, the redemption of God's people has been accomplished. And the laws and the ordinances and principles for the new nation of Israel have been established. And a means for God to be in the midst of his cherished people have been completed. And from the night of the great death in Egypt, which we today call the Passover, to the end of the book of Leviticus was but a mere one year. Now imagine if you were one of those ordinary Hebrews, how your head must have been swimming. How at odds everything Yehovah had instructed through his mediator Moses was with everything you had ever known. All that you thought was of great value, God says, is worthless. All that you thought was worthless, God says, is priceless. And could you or I in one year be completely remolded, remolded? Could you or I, in 12 or 13 cycles of the moon, go from thoroughly pagan to thoroughly godly? Could you or I, in that short period of time, forget all of our cherished customs and traditions that were so real and unquestioned in our lives? Those thoughts those knee-jerk reactions that defined our lives, our ancestors' lives, in favor of a whole new set of rules that at this point were just theoretical ideals. Well, that's the point of development of Israel as we enter the book of Numbers. And of course, all that Israel had been up through then was but the beginning of their walk with God. All that had happened, all that had been instructed to that point, wasn't an end in itself. It was only to prepare them for what lay ahead. Now let me comment that while divine idealism was at the core of the Torah and the teachings that the Lord gave to Moses and Moses passed on to his charges, These commands were also very practical. These priestly laws of Leviticus, in some ways, envisioned a kind of utopia on the one hand. But on the other, they were a framework to a new and holy lifestyle that the Israelites were to live and enjoy as God's people. But we must grasp that these laws were saturated by a realism that fully reflected the social and the political conditions of ancient Israel and the ancient Middle East in general. How Israel operated looked from the outside fairly typical for a people of that era. 
even more, those laws worked. You know, it's, it, it's common and correct for a believer to say that the law was a shadow. And it's a type. And it pointed forward to the work and the mission of Messiah. Yet to make it as though those laws didn't actually have a real and tangible and immediate purpose for Israel, or that they weren't meant to operate and perform as they were designed in everyday practical ways is a big mistake. The God-ordained laws and rituals that set out a means to atonement provided actual atonement for sin. The laws and rituals that set out a means to become clean again after contracting ritual impurity provided that cleansing. This wasn't a pretend or an inferior atonement or cleansing as is too often erroneously taught. Thus in the book of Numbers we'll see that these rituals go into full operation as people sin and then become ritually impure and then the priests perform the proper ritual in the proper manner with the full participation of the worshiper and the situation is remedied. I doubt many Christians have ever ventured into the book of Numbers. What a dull sounding book to our ears. But as you're about to discover The book of Numbers is one of the most vibrant and informative of all the books of the Bible. You see, for us in our day, the word numbers is associated with accounting, record keeping, math, income tax returns, (laughs) balancing checkbooks, using computers and the internet, dealing with budgets, dealing with debt. Numbers are impersonal. They're cold in some ways. They even even maybe feel like a threat. In other ways, numbers represent a kind of self-imposed bondage that we're forced to deal with, like it or not. But long ago, numbers were magical. They were mysterious. They portended good things and maybe bad. They were symbolic. They were thought to be the very key to unlocking the mind and the wills of the gods. Numbers were desired, they were exciting, they were thoroughly studied, they were discussed, they were awesome, they were welcome, sometimes they were greatly feared. Numbers were intensely important to the Hebrew people as well, right on through Jesus' day and on into our era. The Apostle Paul made an abundant use of the book of Numbers in one of his greatest teachings as found in 1 Corinthians 10. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11. Paul says this, For brothers, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by that pillar of cloud. They all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they were all immersed into Moses. Also, They all ate the same food from the Spirit. They all drank the same drink from the Spirit, for they drank from a Spirit-sent rock, which followed them, and that rock was the Messiah. Yet with the majority of them, God wasn't pleased, so their bodies were strewn across the desert. Now, these things took place as prefigurative historical events. 
warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, as the Tanakh puts it. The people sat down to eat and drink, and then they got up to indulge in revelry. Let us not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. Let us not put the Messiah to the test, as some of them did, and be destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the world to come. You see, all of these events that Paul listed we're going to find in the Torah, in the book of Numbers, to be specific. Paul saw what we're going to see. That the book of Numbers, while a record of history, is also prophetic. We're going to see the Messiah in the book of Numbers. And we're going to see him operating before he became a man. Now, Numbers actually isn't even the Hebrew name for this. The fourth of the five books of Torah. Numbers is just the English translation of the Greek name given to this book, Arithmoi, from which we get the word arithmetic. And to the Greeks, they gave this name to it because in the early chapters of it, the Lord orders a census taken of the Israelites and then these results are recorded for us. In Hebrew... The name for this book is Bamidbar, and it means in the wilderness. It's in the book of Bamidbar, in the wilderness, where we find the story of the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness of the Negev, the Sinai, and probably for a short time at least, the Arabian Peninsula. Numbers is really a misnomer. And the amount of actual numbers and lists is quite small. The vast bulk of this book consists of stories and narratives about those formative 40 years that our Lord apparently thought was important for us to know about, as Paul forcefully points out to his listeners. Now, Bamidbar has all sorts of interesting nuances, not the least of which is that the first ten chapters covers a period of only 20 days. That's right. The first ten chapters record the events of less than three weeks. Now, Everett Fox, the editor and commentator for the scholarly Shulkin Bible, sees a structure of the Midbar that can be broken down into thirds. The first section covers chapters 1 through 10, and he calls it the wilderness of Sinai, the camp. And it covers that census of the Israelites and the duties that will be assigned to the Levites. And it explains the ordering of the camp, the rites of the Nazarite, matters of God's presence in the wilderness, tabernacle, and then the the beginning of the journey towards the land of Canaan. The second section covers chapters 11 through 25, and Fox calls it the rebellious folks. Narratives of challenge. It begins by dealing with the fate of the 
generation of exiles that came out of Egypt, the first three of their rebellions, the account of those twelve spies sent into Canaan, then some more rebellions, encounters with various people, and then the famous story of Balaam, the pagan prophet, the seer, the sorcerer. And the third section includes chapters 26 through 36. And our commentator entitles it, In the Plains of Moab, Preparation for the Conquest of Canaan. And it begins with yet another census. It talks about certain holy day sacrifices. It adds some rules about making vows. Tells us of some battles that Israel had with people they ran across. Discusses the upcoming conquest of the promised land. It lays out laws about sanctuary cities or cities of refuge that are going to be operated by a special group of Levites. And these places are going to be a safe place for those who've committed manslaughter to reside under the protection from the kinsmen redeemers who want to get revenge. Since this is a fairly large book, it kind of helps us to know in advance that from a 30,000 foot view, Bamidbar numbers plays out according to a pattern of three. And so we find three important and separate cycles of revelation and instruction from the Lord laid out in its pages. The first cycle takes place at Mount Sinai. The next one at Kadesh, or Kadesh Barnea. And the third takes place in Moab, as Israel gets ready to entertain it. Now, Numbers probably wouldn't be the first book, one whose intent on studying the scriptures would probably want to start with. Because Numbers is based entirely on the foundation that's been laid by Genesis and Exodus. If one doesn't know or understand the foundational context for Bamidbar, then one will invariably misunderstand what goes on in it, particularly as regards the many God-ordained rituals. Yes, Bamidbar has, of course, much ritual woven into it. After all, the prescribed rituals of Leviticus had only within the last several weeks before the events of Numbers even been introduced. And so the time to put them into practice was about to begin. Now modern day Christians, particularly modern day evangelical Christians, don't particularly like rituals as a general rule. In fact, this distaste for ritual isn't new. Most post-enlightenment era Christian scholars make no bones about disliking ritual. And it shows up in their backhanded swipes at the Torah commands and their superficial study and investigation into the roles of the Levite priests especially. Now, since most seminaries teach according to the values and the conclusions of these same scholars the aversion to either doing ritual or even seeing value in the ancient Hebrew ritual practices has carried over to the church in general. Further, as we've discussed before, 
the church has essentially discarded any sense of communal responsibility and in its place adopted individualism is the platform for action and expression of our faith. This disdain for ritual has a comfortable companion in individual-oriented denominational theologies and so the lens through which the Torah is now viewed, and most especially the Christian attitude towards the priestly rituals, is this. Personal freedom and spontaneity are good. Organized ritual is bad. Now I have to tell you honestly, that having been raised in the Protestant branch of the church, and being mostly a product of the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, I have had a terribly hard time adjusting to, act, to, to, to accept celebrating the biblical festivals, Sabbath, and so on. It has not been easy. It's not that I don't think that it's good for me and good for my family, nor do I even argue that it's God's commands. It's simply not what I've known all of my life. And so it's work. It's hard work to set aside what's comfortable and usual in exchange for what's actually biblically prescribed. Now, even if you do not see the value in your involvement in biblical ritual, I can assure you that understanding the Torah rituals is key to understanding the Torah as well as God's place for mankind. Okay. Anthropologists have known, or rather for a long time they have known, that if they're going to understand the society, whether it's modern or ancient, they must begin with that society's rituals. Because rituals are the foremost statements of any society's values. Listen to what M. Wilson, a noted anthropologist, said a half century ago about the importance of rituals in defining a culture. He says this, Rituals reveal values at their deepest level. Men express in ritual what moves them the most. And since the form of expression is conventionalized and obligatory, rituals reveals the values of that group. I see in the study of rituals the key to an understanding of the essential constitution of each human society. I, I don't think there is a more ignored or disliked and there more terribly misunderstood subject in the Bible than the rituals associated with sacrificing. Yet, there is rarely a pastor or Bible teacher, who does not regularly point out that Jesus fulfilled the very sacrificial system they both dis dislike and know nothing about. As Gordon Wenham points out, the sacrificial system is at the very heart of biblical worship. It's unavoidable. So while it may not be entirely comfortable for us, we need to study and understand the rituals of Torah because the entire purpose of those rituals revolves around communication between God and man. 
These rituals explain the very essence of our relationship with the God of the Bible. These rituals for the ancients were like our going to the movies today. This visual element is needed. It's a desired thing for understanding. It's so very powerful. The visual element is so very powerful in men. The church today has just a few rituals left that actually involves the worshiper, mainly baptism and communion, not much else. The problem with this is that what we now have for ritual has become one-sided. Somebody performs, we watch. And somehow or another, our mere presence counts for worship. That wasn't the essence of biblical ritual, Old Testament or new. And as I've made clear, except for sacrifices that were on behalf of the priests or for the behalf of the entire community, the, the worshiper in the Bible days was an active participant. And it was even usually he who killed the sacrificial animal. The worshiper was required on three occasions every year to make a personal pilgrimage to the temple. The worshiper was required to set aside his normal work, cease almost all productive activity, and rest on the Shabbat. The worshiper was required to build and live in a sukkah during Sukkot. Active participation in ritual was the norm. How easy it is for us to sing Billy Graham's famous call to the altar Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Now, how much more would those words mean to us if we had to take a half-ton bull that we'd raised or purchased and dragged it up to the altar, tied it to one of the four altar horns, and then ritually slit its neck artery, watching its life drain away in a few seconds? I think we'd understand sacrifice a little better. The point is that these biblical rituals shouldn't be lost on us. And as we revisit them in the book of Numbers, they're no longer simply the idealism and theory of the book of Leviticus. So pay close attention to them. Because their underlying principles are what the unchanging Lord God of the universe is trying to teach us. Now watch as we explore Bamidbar for even more emerging God patterns. Patterns that will show themselves mightily in the New Testament. One of the most interesting patterns, I think, is that of the Nazarite. When I say Nazarite, don't confuse that with Nazarene or Nazareth, Yeshua's home. A Nazarite is a non-Levite and a non-priest who has been set apart for service to God by means of a vow and thus has an elevated holy status 
as compared to all other Israelites. In modern terms, while we could say that a Levite priest was clergy, a Nazarite is a layman. Put another way, taking the vow of a Nazarite was a way for a person who was not a natural member of the priestly tribe of Levi to be declared holy and fit for service to God, generally on par with a priest. Now, the similarity between a priest and a Nazarite becomes all the more obvious when we study the rituals prescribed for a Nazarite. And they're almost identical to those for a priest. We'll look at those rituals, which contains the essence of the spiritual meaning of its purpose. And we'll do that at the appropriate point in our study of numbers. But for now, just understand that a priest in Israel was a priest by birth. He had a birthright to be a priest because he was born into the proper tribe. A Nazarite, on the other hand, was just an ordinary Israelite. He's a person who had no right to be a priest because he wasn't born into the right tribe. Yet God made a provision for those who were non-Levites but still wanted to serve him to be able to do so. By faith and trust in God and by God's declaration, this person, this Nazarite, who is foreign to the priesthood, is allowed to take on a special holiness, virtually equal to that of a priest. Again, the only difference is that the Nazarite cannot perform sanctuary duties. This is a model of how a Gentile, who is a foreigner to Israel, can, if he so desires, be brought by the declaration of God into the service of God under the covenants of Israel. In other words, the Nazarite is a model and a pattern of how a Gentile can become a believer and worship the God of Israel. Now, physically speaking, a Jew and a Gentile are different. A Jew has an advantage in that he is born into the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but a Gentile is not. Physically, a priest and a Nazarite are different. A priest is part of the tribe of Levi, a Nazarite is not. Spiritually, a Jew and a Gentile who trust God are made equal in status before the Lord. Spiritually, a priest and a Nazarite are made equal in status before the Lord. But, they each merely have different roles. The one was born into his role, the other one had to be grafted in to attain his, so to speak. But in both cases, they fall under the same covenants. The point here is that we're going to see these patterns and principles appear in the New Testament. Paul speaks on them, and he uses the incidents recorded in Numbers especially to make his point 
that Yeshua fulfilled the patterns and principles of the Torah. But, and this is so essential to grasp, and these in the days just ahead of us, Paul also makes the point that if the already redeemed Israelites rebelled and got punished for it in ancient times, as we're going to read about on multiple occasions in the book of Numbers, why would a believer redeemed by the blood of Yeshua think he could escape, he could be rebellious and still escape God's harsh hand of discipline? Now, I would like to close tonight's preparation for a study of the Midbar numbers with the words of a man whose works I greatly admire and find myself usually in lockstep with. Gordon Wyndham, Wyndham rather, a, a wonderful Christian scholar who teaches at Gloucester College of Higher Education in England. And he says this about the importance of understanding and accepting the value of biblical ritual as it pertains to the modern Christian. He says this, Similarly, the sacrificial offerings of animals, flour, oil, and wine prescribed in numbers are no longer valid expressions of Christian worship because they point beyond themselves to the one atoning sacrifice of Christ, which has made them obsolete. Yet, Christians are still reminded, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledged his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for these are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. The principle of wholehearted dedication to the worship of God links the Old and New Testaments, even if our mode of devotion has altered somewhat. Similarly, if the tithe remains a norm for Christian giving, it may be noted that some believers, way back when, evidently gave much more. If much of the biblical legislations can't be applied today, its thoroughness and attention to detail should challenge the modern church to ask whether our more casual attitudes may not be a cloak for our indifference. Gordon Wenham is certainly not calling to start sacrificial procedures anew. But it is a reminder to us that while so many of the biblical rituals take their form from the biblical feasts, for instance, while in no way needed for atonement or salvation, are they indeed still needed they're still needed to teach and to remind. Okay. To teach and remind us of God's principles, of his laws and commands. How much better it is to live our lives in rhythm with the universe that he created rather than out of tune. Okay. The book of Numbers is historic, it's worshipful, it's instructive, and at times it is marvelously poetic. And having studied the first three books of Torah, you're now prepared to drink in and grasp the awesome revelations that are going to provide so many connecting links to the works of Yeshua HaMashiach, the saving attribute or person of the Lord God Almighty.
Okay, that'll do it for tonight.